third stage, third record, same formula, same cover, same studio. Honestly, the most memorable thing to me is how the tape smelled. Do you remember how those old tapes? <laughs> I don't know if you were a fan of this, but do you remember how those old tapes used to smell? Uh, maybe not. Sure. Boston's third stage had a five-star smell. <laughs> so, <laughs> and that's the last nice thing we'll say about that's it. That's exactly right. Welcome to Discography, the podcast that gives Gen X music maniacs a chance to smell like teen spirit again by connecting with a brotherhood obsessed with rating the entire discography of every single artist and band that ever mattered. I'm your host, Dave Gebro, and with three new episodes each week, you're going to gain a comprehensive knowledge of an act's history and output in the time it takes to listen to one album. And in this episode, we'll be turning our spray cans on Boston, <laughs> along with our special guest, Rob Cassis, creator and host of the 1001 Album Complaints podcast, on which I valiantly defended the off-derided ELP Prague Confusion Fest Tarkus, and that was on episode 126. In the next hour and a half, we'll learn about the endless rejection which the band faced in its early days, not to mention the tireless perseverance that turns out to be a valuable trait when you end up releasing one of the 10 biggest selling debut records of all time. We'll also learn about the first piece of music that Tom Schultz ever wrote and which song on the debut it turned out to be, not to mention the full shocking story behind singer Brad Delp's tragic suicide. Okay, first things first, you need to know just how seriously I take this craziness. Discography is a music obsessive's dream come true. The guest and I explore an artist or band's entire discography in a futile but valiant attempt to reach a higher truth, which often is cleverly disguised as a nerdy compendium of star ratings and lists. The show is heavily researched, and the music is always reassessed with fresh ears. We don't just cover albums, uh-uh. We do a searingly honest deep-dive analysis of all EPs, singles, comp tracks, relevant solo work, and sometimes bootlegs and live stuff. Every release is slapped with an objectively accurate star rating between 0 and 5, which allows us all. The real reason we do this, the Tootsie Pop reward at the center of the rock and roll lolly, to come face to face with the true shape of an artist's overall arc. Coming up, we've got John Worcester talking about his favorite live albums of all time, Mark Robinson from Unrest rating everything he's ever done, Robert Schneider from The Apples in Stereo rating everything he's ever done, and Will Hart from the Olivia Tremor Control rating everything they ever did. Oh, and Michelle Phillips rating everything she's ever done, alongside Mamas and Papas author Richard C. Campbell, who's written a brand new book about him getting kinda itchy. So don't miss out. Open up your listening app right now and subscribe. And for significantly longer, complete versions of all our shows, just go to patreon.com slash discography and subscribe. Even if you're not sure, just head on over there because it's finally completely free to become a basic member. We've got 100 episodes available exclusively on Patreon, and that number, as well as the discography inner circle, is growing exponentially by the day. That's Patreon. Patreon.com slash discography. And away we go then. Let's welcome tonight's guest, Rob Cassis. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Dave. Appreciate it. Dude, you are a baller. And here's how. 
Here's how, my man. I've been on a bunch of podcasts, and I'm not really a podcast guy, to be honest with you. But the experience I had on your show was unquestionably the highlight. I love your show. It was a blast to appear on it. So it was a no-brainer asking you on to mine as well. Well, thanks for saying that, Dave. That's really awesome. We're happy to have you to come on and defend ELP's Tarkus. I think a listener wrote in subsequently and called it a dumpster fire. So great work there. <laughs> Fuck it, man. I mean, I can't think of a more valiant way to go down. <laughs> <laughs> indeed. Indeed. Well, we'll have to have you back soon. Later today works for me. <laughs> uh, so, you know, you are the first guy who's been on the show who runs a podcast. You've been doing your, your show for how long now, man? Uh, it's about two and a half years. So that's right. We're almost neck and neck in terms of how much we've created. And also, you know, it takes a maniac's type of glee to be this far into it and realize, you know what, I'm going to keep going. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think I'm a little like you. I didn't want to do it at all unless I could do at least 100 episodes. So, From what I understand, most of what's out there on the interwebs and whatnot is just a graveyard of dashed hopes in terms of what people thought they could do. Everyone goes into this thinking, this will be fun. It's a lark. It's, it's the furthest fucking thing from it. Exactly. And I think as an avid podcast listener myself, before I began, I did understand that aspect of it, the the workman's like attitude that would would needed to be applied to get the consistency that we required. Yeah, and you have guys you do it with who are your friends, right? That's correct. Yeah, my friends and ex bandmates and current bandmates and guys I've been running with for the last twenty years, more or less, just talking about records. So they're all musicians, and that's sort of the context of the show is that we break down classic albums from a musician's point of view. So let's talk about Boston. Is this a band that? has any kind of import to you for your past or tell me about your relationship with them oh hell yeah i like boston a lot i grew up on classic rock radio driving around in my dad's car in the 90s and boston is omnipresent across those channels as i think we know yeah but i have to admit i hadn't dived so deep into the catalog as i did for this particular discussion we're about to have until until recently you know what one reason why i'm exceptionally excited about doing this is it seems that Almost every band that's chosen for the show, I have a live or die attitude about. It's like life or death, everything's got to be perfect because I live and die by this band. Boston is a different thing for me, not that they're not great, but it's nice to have a band where we can kind of have some fun with it where I don't feel personally like I've thrown all my chips onto the table with them. Yeah, uh, I get know, what the, you mean. You know, if you have something that's labeled corporate rock, my heart and soul aren't going to be invested <laughs> in it. <laughs> I think you're right. They don't strike me as a band that has a insanely devoted following of Boston heads. You know, I don't think their fan base has a specific name per se, but I've always known them to be kind of studio monsters. And I think yeah. reviewing the entire catalog kind of helped reinforce that yeah what they mean to me is my dad used to blast this record yeah i remember coming back from elementary school on a friday i would be walking up to the house after being dropped off by the school bus and i'd be hearing one of several records blaring from the house and it was typically bob seeger bruce springsteen 
where Boston, you know, my dad had a very 1970s, 1980s sort of blue collar approach to the music he chose, even though he didn't have a blue collar job. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know if it was a street cred thing where he was like trying to fool himself into thinking he was coming back from the factory and taking off the hard hat. But he would greet me at the door with a big smile on his face and a beer in his hand, ready to party and rock in a corporate style. So for this episode, what's going to really distinguish this from every other episode we've ever done is typically the run-up, which is the section that gets us up to the very first release in as economical a fashion as possible. The run-up is actually going to be a large part of the focus of the episode. And then when they start releasing records, the further we go into their catalog, the more we're going to just kind of glide over the music itself because, hey, if the music could be an afterthought for them, it could be for us too. I think that's fair. <laughs> yeah, it makes sense. And I, I agree that uh, that run-up story is the most interesting part of the tale and a very interesting one. So I, I'm excited to get into it. It's actually an incredible life lesson. And I think about the run-up to the Boston debut coming out extremely frequently. I think about, you know, what it takes to be successful. And sometimes, even though massive success beckons, you may be the only one that knows it. And as long as you don't give up and listen to the losers that you encounter on a day-to-day -day basis, you'll be fine. Now, let's introduce the characters in today's episode. I mean, basically, we're talking about Tom Schultz, Brad Delp, Barry Goudreau, and Sib Hashian. Those are the four guys who we start the tale off with. Then there's an interchangeable coterie of all kinds of different folks coming in. Frankly, none of them matter. <laughs> I think it's fair to say none of them matter. And frankly, if you want to go even deeper into it, the two people who truly matter in this episode are Tom Schultz and Brad Delp. All right, let's talk about the quote-unquote artistry of the Boston sound. It's huge hooks with these really heavy, classically-inspired guitar parts. And so the vocal harmony aspect of the band was inspired by the left bank, and the guitar-driven aspect was influenced by the Kinks, the Yardbirds, and Blue Cheer. And another super signature element of the Boston sound production wise involves a sweet balance between acoustic and electric guitars and whether or not it's apparent in the music Tom Schultz who's the real mastermind behind all this was inspired by a childhood listening to classical music and so there's these multiple part harmonized guitar solos and these guys whether or not it comes across Tom knows his shit and he's very very serious about it as a craft Let's just kick it in, okay? So here's the run-up, which typically is super economical part of the show. But in this particular instance, it'll be as uneconomical as we can make it because it's incredibly interesting. So in the late 1960s, Tom Schultz started going to MIT in Mass, where he first began writing music, including an instrumental called Foreplay. He graduated with a master's degree, began working for Polaroid in the product development division, and by by night, he was playing keyboards for bands in the local area. He and a keyboardist slash drummer named Jim Mazdia, the two of them, they shared a concept of the perfect rock band. And I'm quoting here, one with crystal clear vocals and bone crunching guitars. And these guys, they built a small studio near Watertown, Mass to record ideas. Schultz would record for hours, re-recording, erasing, and just monomaniacally 
barreling ahead in an effort to create a perfect song. This is, to me, an incredible notion. This guy who, you know, really is at the outset of things before the band is set in stone or even named, he's chasing perfection. Not just a good band, but perfection. It's a good thing to keep in mind because I believe, as do many, many others, that with that first record, he kind of achieved it and then there was nowhere else to go. So it's an interesting thing when you're shooting for a level of magic like that. Yeah. Well, like you said, I think the context is that he's an engineer. He was pursuing his master's, I believe, at MIT. And he was working in an engineering capacity. And I, I think the context that's sometimes lost in today's world is how challenging it was to get your hands on this technology, this recording technology. And so him setting his mind to building a fully functional recording studio in his apartment in this era was no small feat, right? Oh, not at all. It seems like every step that he took, they were hard-won victories for Tom. That's what it seems like. It's certainly not yeah. an overnight success. Both of these guys, Jim and Tom, they later joined a group called Mother's Milk, which was a band that featured a guitarist named Barry Goudreau, who, of course, came into Boston later on. Schultz quickly went from the keyboardist to becoming lead songwriter, and the band went through dozens of lead vocalists before Brad Delp auditioned. Delp was a former factory worker and spent a lot of his weekends in cover bands. He drove to Revere Beach, a place I used to be at all the time because there's a great dog track there called Wonderland and an amazing place called Kelly's Roast Beef, which was actually not really known for their roast beef. They were known for their clams. He drove to Revere Beach where the three-piece were performing at a club called JoJo's. Delp was really impressed that the band had recorded a demo tape and were still recording. He auditioned with the Joe Walsh song, Rocky Mountain Way. He got the gig and Mother's Milk became an early version of Boston with Goudreau and lead. Phase one, and by the way, this is the first time ever that I've done a phase that begins during the run-up, but it deserves it. Phase one, Total flat-out rejection and the magic of perseverance, 1973 to 1975. Let's talk about that demo tape. The hours I've thought of that story as a reminder of the importance of perseverance, it's, it's about that tape. By 1973, the band, which was still called Mother's Milk, had a six-song demo tape ready for mailing, and Schultz and his wife Cindy sent copies to every record company they could find. The songs on that demo were More Than a Feeling, Peace of Mind, Rock and Roll Band, Something About You, which was then called Life Isn't Easy, Hitch a Ride, which was then called San Francisco, Day and Don't Be Afraid, which would eventually be released on their second record. The group received rejection slips left and right, which is hysterical. Look at these songs. These are not outre music concrete sort of deals. This is as FM rock radio ready as it gets. But RCA, Capital, Atlantic, Electra, and a slew of others sent them rejection notices, and Epic Records rejected the tape with apparently a very insulting letter signed by the, <laughs> <laughs> signed by the company head that said the band, quote, offered nothing new. What is wrong with record executives? Because as I understand it, too, the demo was quite high quality. It's actually, I think, quite similar to what we ultimately get on record number one, right? 
So how could you, given both the songwriting potential, the fact that it was the mid-70s, I mean, yeah, I get it. It kind of sounds like other songs from the 70s, but these are bangers. How do you pass on this? Especially with, you know, when you get bands like Styx or REO Speedwagon, you know, super workmanlike bands, whether or not you like or, or dislike them, this was that kind of music writ much larger. In my purview, I don't fuck with those other bands. Dan Kapelovitz is the only person running for Los Angeles District Attorney who was the features editor of Hustler Magazine, where he served as Larry Flint's editorial point man in his lawsuit against the Pentagon. Dan Kapelovitz is the only person running for Los Angeles District Attorney who has directed the experimental masterpiece Triple Fisher, described by Screen Slate as, quote, a cacophonous, queasy reduplication of the real that potently situates the Amy Fisher-Joey Botafuco affair within the realm of the Baudrillarian hyperreal, where representations proliferate so rapidly and with increasingly obscene detail as to thoroughly leave behind any concern with the grubby facts and what they might reveal about a lonely teenager and her world. Dan Kapelovitz is the only person running for Los Angeles District Attorney who is dedicated to ending mass incarceration and getting at the root of the crime problem. So crimes don't happen in the first place. If you believe in liberty, justice, and the American way, rhymes with for the hell of it, vote Kapelovitz. I'm Dan Kapelovitz, and I approve this message. To me, the innovation here is the addition of harmony to a lot of those other ideas. I guess Styx has a lot of harmony, too. I don't know. Maybe you can help me put it in context, because this idea of perfection, we were talking not too long ago on our podcast, 1001 Album Complaints, about Deja Vu, the CSNY record, and we were kind of going into their history. And we were talking about how come 1970, the idea of three-part harmony was relatively new to the rock listening public's ear. People were used to two-part, the Everly Brothers, through the Beatles, etc. But you start getting into three-part and beyond. I think that's what introduces us to the 70s. Mm-hmm. It, it felt like an innovation at the time, you know? Do you think they were held back by the fact that they were working class guys? Was that an aspect of it? Or the fact that Tom was an educated guy. I was trying to dive into the echelon of other highly educated rockers. It's not that common. And I think most of the examples people would come up with are folks who got famous and then went back and pursued a degree. But I don't know. I'm just wondering if that was an aspect of him getting denied. It's a good question. And those are the years that are of real primary interest to me because the guy stuck to his guns for an enormous amount of time. Delp actually left the band by that point because there just wasn't any money coming in. So in 75, Schultz was done with the club scene and concentrating exclusively on the demo tapes that he was recording at home in his basement. Schultz was renting his house, actually spent the money he had saved for a down payment on a future home on a Scully 8-track. You know, I think this is where potentially the way that the sort of unwritten rules of his relationship professionally with Delp came into play because Delp had officially left the band. Tom called him to provide vocals, saying, if you can't really afford to join the band, maybe you just want to come down to the studio and sing on some of these tapes for me. Mm -hmm. So basically, even in the thick of it, I think Tom's trying to take advantage. (laughs) I do. That's what it sounds like to me. I think he's trying to scramble, right? One of the things that strikes me about this band and this story is that it kind of breaks the most cardinal rule of most bands that become successful. I mean, you're talking about perseverance, but let's give it some context. They're now in their mid to late twenties. 
And Tom, at least, has what would be considered a good paying job. He has a burgeoning career, right? So he's working his full 40 hours plus a week. And then he's coming home and doing this stuff. And at least when I was in that era of my life, so I was in a band in my mid to late 20s with all my best friends, some of my current co-hosts on the podcast, and we all had jobs too. I think when we ultimately did not make it, huge surprise, we ascribed it to the fact that we had jobs and lives outside the band, and it's hard to commit fully. Like, There's something about being 19 and living in a two-bedroom apartment with six other guys and just living and breathing music, and the band is all you can hope to achieve in life. It's really your only prospect in life. That's how a lot of bands break, right? Yeah. But once you're kind of out, let's say in your in your mid to late 20s kind of playing adult. You're not quite an adult yet, but you're playing adult. You have your own place, you have an income, you're probably having semi-serious relationships that you have to manage. It there's a lot and then you still have to put all this time into being a bar band that's not having any success and recording demos in your basement that aren't going anywhere. You know, that's that's inherently much more challenging, I think. Yeah, the kinds of cockeyed glances that I've gotten from my family, from a lot of other people for leaving, you know, a very secure job and doing what I'm doing right now with the podcast full time. I can certainly empathize. I mean, he must have, I don't know if he was feeling panicked, but he had lots of reason to feel panicked. Um, (laughs) Yeah. What happened with regard to them actually getting their shit together is epic. Uh, It was epic records. So Schultz had given the mother's milk demo to a Polaroid co-worker whose cousin worked at ABC, who had signed one of Schultz's favorite bands, the James Gang. The employee forgot to mail the tape out, and it sat in his desk for months in another stroke of shitty luck during this time that seemed par for the course. Then Columbia began contacting Schultz, after which he sent the tape to ABC. I don't know if that's too convoluted to follow, but Charles McKenzie, who was a New England rep for ABC, first overheard the tape in a co-worker's office. He called Paul. Paul Ahern, an independent record promoter in Cali, with whom he had a gentleman's agreement that if either heard anything interesting, they would get in touch with the other. And Ahern had connections at Epic. So Epic contacted Schultz, offered a contract that required the group to first perform in a showcase for CBS representatives, which is funny because, you know, I just watched the Millie Vanilli documentary. It was great. And what they wanted at the time was this showcase because they were a little concerned that the band was in reality, just some mad genius at work in a basement. Millie Vanilli (laughs) could have been snuffed out before they even reached the light had this occurred. So that initial guy, Jim Mazdi, had started to lose interest in the project by now, and Schultz called Goudreau and two other performers who'd recorded on the early demos, Fran Sheehan on bass and a drummer named Dave Courier to complete the lineup. In November 75, the group performed for the execs in a Boston warehouse that doubled as Aerosmith's practice facility, and Mother's Milk was signed by CBS one month later in a contract that typically was maddeningly reductive for the musician. It required 10 albums over six years. (laughs) Jesus. Yeah. So Courier quit before he knew the band passed the audition. 
And by the way, I would love to know if he wakes up every day thinking about this the moment he wakes up to take a well, piss. Exactly. He, you know, he must. I mean, there's two things that occurred to me about the story even thus far. One is the demos were made by a mad genius in the basement. And so yeah. then compiling that band is no small feat. These songs are tough to play, or at least certainly the guitar harmonies and the vocal harmonies are no small feat to just compile and get guys together. Tom must have been sweating when he got that call. Like, oh shit, like now I have to get a band actually be able to play this live effectively and yeah and number two to get that call as courier to go like oh yeah you're not even in my band i just happen to know you but we're about to audition for a record contract a big one and all you have to do is learn these parts and then presumably he did do that and the audition went well meaning he did it well yeah and then he quits that's insane it is insane because any story that's like right place right timing is still fucked up man i don't know if there's been research about what percentage that bumps up your chances to consider committing suicide but it has to have some kind of an effect on that absolutely i'm not telling you mr courier to kill yourself but i'm saying that it probably has crossed your mind i just wonder what it was what was he must have been so annoyed at the working conditions or or something because again that means he sat there with the demo tape he had to learn it it took time they had to practice some amount of times before this live showcase and i guess he's just so annoyed at tom schultz and his band leadership. That's the only thing I can point to. I'm glad it happened because Sib Hashian took his place and he's really a great drummer. He's exceptional. It works out for me. So then there's another thing that they have to deal with, another hurdle, which is that Epic had signed an agreement with NABET, N-A-B-E-T, which is the union that represents electrical and broadcast engineers. And that specified that any recording done outside of a Columbia-owned studio, but within a 250-mile radius of one of those studios, required that a paid union engineer be present. Oh. Seems like a small thing, but what that meant to Tom is that the tinkering he'd been doing for years was going to be in his rear view because the label wanted the band to travel to LA and re-record their songs with a different producer. Schultz, in the first of a limitless amount of times, was unhappy with being unable to be in charge. (laughs) (laughs) He was a control freak. And by the way, it totally makes sense because you let your guard down for one second, the music industry will treat you like Ned Beatty in Deliverance. Well, listen, he is a control freak, but that's on one end of the spectrum. But the idea that it's somehow just on the face of just because of a union rule, you can't use your home studio where you are the most comfortable, where you know how to work all the equipment and where you have objectively proven that you can make it sound good seems completely insane so it doesn't take a control freak to push back against that silliness right right but the way that he handled it is kind of brilliant a guy named john boylan who was a friend of a friend of that guy ahern that we talked about before came on board the project and boylan's duty was to run interference for the label and keep them happy he made a crucial initial suggestion which was change your name to boston Phase two, the only period anyone in their right mind really cares about, (laughs) 1976 to 1978. Ever wondered what your favorite bands talk about after the gig on the long van ride between Reno and Salt Lake City? Do you miss having in-depth conversations about music with your closest friends, picking apart why some songs are good and why some miss the mark completely? 
Do you read every inch of the available liner notes and still shake a fist at the clouds yelling for more? Damn it, more? If any of this sounds familiar, 1001 Album Complaints is the podcast for you. Every week, musicians and close friends give irreverent but informed takes on a new classic album pulled randomly from the book 1001 Albums You Must Hear Before You Die. The hosts do extensive research telling the stories behind your favorite records and helping you better understand how songs, both great and terrible, were conceived and built from the ground up. In short, it's a deep dive with lots of laughs. So if you want to sound informed and funny when talking about music, I recommend you follow or subscribe to 1001 Album Complaints right now. It's available everywhere. And by wait, wait, the way, hold on. I, do you know? Do you have any intel on what the thinking was behind changing the name to Boston? Because that, on the face of it, that sounds like a terrible idea. I don't know what inspired the change. I do know that you know, in the late sixties, there was the Boston sound. Do you know about this? Mm, no, I don't. So in the late sixties, there was a sort of ill-advised effort to promote Boston as if it was you know the new San Francisco. So there were bands like Orpheus is one of them. There was nothing that was aesthetically transcendent or anything that was new. It was a lot of hype and music consumers at that time threw a stink eye at that kind of thing. And the Boston sound did not take off. And that's the late sixties and the early seventies. So I am surprised that actually given that that they would want to actually dust off that kind of idea i'm just not sure of the wisdom of that marketing approach in the post google era it definitely doesn't make sense like how how's anyone going to find this band but even back then are they just thinking oh yeah we're going to market it to bostonians or or like you said we're going to try to link it to a hip musical city that never quite came to fruition i certainly don't think about boston i don't associate it with music as a city but i guess it's better than mother's milk mother's Milk has a it little is. bit of looking backward 60s to it in my mind now. And yeah. Boston certainly feels in the clear light of 2023 as if it uh, is looking forward into the 70s. Well, yeah, it, I don't know if it's looking forward, but it's looking into the present because, yeah, Kansas, Chicago, if you have a name that, that reflects a city, ah, they've done well. That's interesting. And was Chicago already, did they put out their first record yet? Do you happen to yeah. know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Chicago at this point were sailing very high. They'd put out a dip load of multiple part records all right fair enough phase two the only period anyone in their right mind really cares about 1976 to 78 1976 the self-titled debut record comes out produced by tom schultz and john boylan released on august 25th 1976 by epic the contents of the record are a recreation of the demo tape and contain songs that are written and composed years prior besides schultz who played really most of the instruments on nearly all of the tracks and Delp other musicians do appear on the album but it's sparing and this is something I didn't even know until doing the research the original drummer Jim Mazdi worked extensively with Schultz during the writing and demo process but plays drums on one song on the final record rock and roll band that's it wow that's wild Sib Hashkin plays drums on the rest of the tracks Barry Goudreau on guitar and Fran Sheehan on bass who joined the band after most of the tracks had been recorded contribute some overdubs 
clubs to foreplay long time and appear on Let Me Take You Home Tonight, which was recorded separately from the rest of the record. Otherwise, it's Schultz. Which is mind-blowing. I found that yeah. out in the run-up to this episode as well, and that blows my mind. I want to point out to listeners who may not know, there are several amazing things about that. One is that he plays all these instruments so well. The musicianship on display across the board is just really, really at a high level. But it's not just that. It's the careful planning, like the idea of constructing these tunes. And I guess the it sounds like the reality was that he had so carefully constructed them already in demo format, just piece by piece by piece, probably with lots of little edits along the way, that maybe by the time it got to that point of actually recording for the record, they could just execute. And it still hits the record in an inspired fashion. It doesn't sound so played that it's ossified and concrete or what have no. you. It's, it's inspired. Um, I totally agree. Oh, yeah. Last part is it sounds like a live band, which is yeah. hard to achieve when you're building it piece by piece through overdubbing as, right. as it apparently was built. It really sounds like a gelled live outfit. And yet, at the end of the day, this motherfucker is a track stacker. I was just genuinely surprised by that outcome. H having known these songs for so long, I did not know that that's how they were created. Yeah, it's kind of like an erector set of a young OCD boy. That's kind of like what yeah. it feels like. I yeah. don't want to talk yet about the release, because this album was pretty popular. We'll get there. But the moral of the story is, before we get into the recording of this thing, is never, ever, ever give up. Unless, of course, you suck. In which case, please give up. Spare us. So, primarily, the record was recorded at Schultz's own Fox Glove Studios in Watertown, Mass., in an elaborate end run around the CBS Brain Trust. Something he said, quoting him, it would flood all the time. You know, this is a pine-paneled basement of his tiny apartment. And Boylan's hands-on involvement would center on recording the vocals and mixing. And he took the rest of the band out to the West Coast, where they were recorded let me take you home tonight and that was a decoy i don't know if you know this man and i didn't but schultz recorded more than a feeling in his basement with a 100 dollars yamaha acoustic guitar i saw that detail that is wild that is wild it just goes to show you kids don't spend money on gear damn it yeah 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 it's it's unreal. practice instead <laughs> And this had to have been the last moment of self-doubt that Schultz experienced, but when he arrived in L.A. for mixing, he felt really intimidated, was fearing that the engineers, all these pros around it, would view him as a hick that worked in a basement. And instead, he felt that they were super backwards in their approach and lacked knowledge that he had obtained. He said these people were so swept up in how cool they were and how important it was to have all this high-priced crap that they couldn't see the forest for the trees. I feel like that moment was a turning point for him. Where his ego got three sizes bigger and uh, broke the Grinch's sled or whatever. I think it's an interesting thing to talk about, though. The studio is itself an instrument full of all these little attributes and toys in it. And I think a lot of times what ends up happening is people who work at those studios, probably, you know, they just inherit the instrument. They're not born in the studio. They don't come up learning how to troubleshoot all the weird little pieces of it or because they have the funding 
like was just implied there in that story, they never have to work around things. Mm-hmm. You know, necessity is the mother of invention. And when you run a home studio, I don't care how much money and time and expertise you put into building it. We've always had this fantasy as musicians that, oh, I'll just set something up in my home and just press one button and then I'll be recording and everything will work perfectly. No, it never, ever, ever works that way. There is yeah. always troubleshooting problems what's going on where in the chain is the cord broken or why is my technology malfunctioning so i I totally buy that that i would take a tom schultz over a guy who even had worked at a high-priced studio for a year or something if they hadn't really done their homework on on the technology the other thing you mentioned was that he had a basement studio that flooded continually. That seems to go against a lot of the other stuff we've heard, because Tom Schultz was an engineer, if nothing else. Flooding and electronics do not go together at all. No. So I'm no. just I'm just a little surprised by that detail, like that he couldn't either A, engineer around that problem, or B, that it didn't completely ruin what he had built in that basement. Another aspect of the floods, what he's quoted as saying is, it would flood with God knows what. <laughs> So we talking duty here? What are we talking about here? It seems like a strange detail to include there. Um, Yeah, that is odd. I feel like there's some mystery still. How did they get around the union rules ultimately? So what they did was the band heading out to LA to record was the decoy. And with the exception of Let Me Take You Home Tonight, the album was a virtual copy of the demo tapes. So Schultz wound up blowing all this money in the studio just to appease the figureheads at the label who saw that he was spending the money but uh. what, it, what he was doing actually was recording mainly in his basement and that fucking album was recorded for a cost of a few thousand dollars so truly it was a couple thousand dollars even though his studio bill to the label was quite high right interesting yeah so what do you think do you think that schultz is a diva or is he touched by the hand of god as far as talent goes i think he's in the process at this part in the story of becoming a diva we're in pre-diva mode right now whereas this is before mariah carey had her first hit you know she's got the makings of of the monster but it hasn't come to fruition just yet another key factor to keep in mind is he's making inspired music at this point that wasn't always to be the case so I guess, you know, which side of the argument you're going to settle on depends on where you think he landed in terms of the results. Well, I wasn't even thinking as much about the results, but yeah, let's talk about the results for just one moment. There is a common saying in songwriting or in music that you have your whole life to write your first album and you have nine months to write your second album. It's inherently harder to follow up success. He built all that life experience and time and saved up those songs and worked them to death in a good way it sounds like right and for that i think we should tip our cap to him certainly but i think the diva meter it's held in a fine balance if you get a little too much pressure in there if you get a little too much power to wield you know you're gonna tip over so i think at this point he's just a hard-working dude who has studied the things he needs to study the instruments themselves mm-hmm. of course the songwriting craft and all the equipment to produce the musical wizardry he's paid his dues like crazy it's been absolutely like seven years or what have you to build to this point and that's not coincidental that it took right. the those seven years and then we also get this great initial product and then it's degrading results from there one thing about this that i find very funny is that the trademark sci-fi theme for the record cover that was schultz's concept and 
you know, he says the idea was escape. I thought of a spaceship guitar. The original spaceship was designed in 76 by a woman named Paula Scher and illustrated by, who cares, <laughs> a couple, <laughs> couple other people. But the funny thing about that to me is that kind of illustration is definitely, certainly based on Roger Dean's work in the progressive realm. And except for the song Foreplay Long Time, there was nothing prog about this. But yet they held on to the concept forever decades after there was definitively no connection whatsoever between the prog realm and boston interesting you know the thing that just occurs to me now about the spaceship it is an iconic image or set of images that's associated with the band but now that's that's one more way i think they maybe were aligning themselves with the career of the band chicago who always kind of put out the same record cover with consistency yeah, yeah, yeah. you know it's it's like people say if you always wear the same outfit like your steve jobs or Wee Herman and people will remember you better. I mean, listen, once ZZ Top locked into the Beard situation, they can't change. Yeah, yeah. You got to love that Frank Beard didn't go for it, though. Perfect. So track listing, everything is written by Tom, except for Smokin', which was co-written with Brad Delp. And Let Me Take You Home Tonight, written solely by Delp. All right, so let's talk about that first side. I want to say, before we even start talking about these three songs, that I, too, it sounds like you grew up on FM rock radio. To me, there literally is no better album side in the history of music to find firmament on FM rock radio than side one of Boston's debut. It is, to me, a platonic ideal, and it's unmatchable. It's perfect, in my opinion. It's absolutely perfect. I'm going to have to agree with you on this one, Dave, because what I wrote down first when listening to this for the very first time in prep, again, I had heard all these songs a million times, but given it this thorough listen and the album cut listen was still was a little bit new to me. I certainly had listed the album in a long time. So when I put this on, by the time I got to song five, I was like, holy shit, this is such a confident, insanely confident debut with just hit song after hit song. I kind of couldn't believe it. It plays like a greatest hits album. It does. And that's because it is. Spoiler alert, there's only maybe three other songs from the rest of their career that I would just tack on to the end of this. The origin of the song, there's a guitar solo that's reminiscent of the song Telstar. The song actually unintentionally incorporates a chord progression from Walk Away Renee. Following the line, I see my Marianne walking away. That's where Mm -hmm. it kind of comes in. The Book of Rock lists suggest that the chorus riff may be a subtle homage to Louie Louie. It was the lead single to the record, which I can't think of a better first single. And this took Tom five years to complete. Let's talk about how the music actually comes into being, that fade in, that endless fade in, which to me is a really ballsy way because this is a group that's been around for years trying to get their music heard. And you gotta be confident to finally get there. And instead of having, especially with rock music, having a thing that kicks in and punches you right in the gonads, there's an endless fade-in, which to me speaks of endless confidence. That's a good point. I wrote down confidence as well. There's so much confidence in these songs, and you're calling out a specific portion of it that must have been tempting to jump right in with one of the more rockin' numbers, let's say, mm-hmm. like, like a rock and roll band, or even a smokin', something that was up-tempo right away. But they were absolutely right to put more than a feeling first, of course, right? As we know, yeah. it's one of the most popular songs, perhaps of all time. 
I mean, we talk sometimes on our podcast about side one, track one, album one. Like, mm-hmm. what a way to come out of the box. You freaking nailed it. And I would just say not just the confidence to fade in and allow the song to develop. That's what you're talking about. The listener has to listen for more than 30 seconds to kind of get to the meat of the song. That's part of its charm. The reality is this is a fully formed band concept from pretty much note one, and then it stays consistent, certainly through this entire debut record. Every aspect of this song is perfect. The fade-in, the drums that tumble into the song, Delp's falsetto is a platonic ideal of rock and roll singing, period. Agreed. Um, the guitars in the chorus, even the, what I would consider otherwise cheesy, the hand claps. It's just total FM rock radio perfection. And to top it all off, the whole thing is ensconced in a cocoon of incest. Because who is Marianne? You see that Marianne walking away? Schultz says, and I quote, there actually is a Marianne. She wasn't my girlfriend. He explained that when he was eight or nine years old, he had a much older cousin who he thought was the most beautiful girl he had ever seen and that he was secretly <laughs> in love with. So, I mean, that just makes it even beyond perfect. Yeah. Uh, wow. Now you put that, that incest angle into my brain. Now I can enjoy the song more. Next time I have sex with one of my cousins, I know what song I'm putting on. <laughs> so, Peace of Mind, track two, which is the third and final single from the record. More than a feeling peaked at number five. This peaked at number 38, although you'd never know it because, again, it's a rock radio staple. This song is about the people Schultz worked with at Polaroid before getting his record contract and the lack of interest that he had in climbing the corporate ladder and playing the game. It's, it's as great a single as can be imagined. It's probably the least important song on the first side, but only because it hews closest to more of a generic notion of a single. But that doesn't at all take it down a peg for me. It's another perfect song. I agree. It's basically a perfect song. This is the one that stands out to me lyrically. I don't always think they're the best lyrically, and, and it doesn't bother me typically. But I would say that I, I like the lyrics of this song a lot. It was about thinking about quitting his job to pursue music full time, being worried he was going to be left behind in his career if he took a break from it or deviated from it and kind of ultimately going, you know what? I don't care. I'm never going to be happy with myself. I'm never going to have peace of mind unless I pursue this dream. Yeah. And you know, it's funny. I never saw the correlation here, but these guys are like Oasis. Look at Oasis's first record. I'm not going to paint myself as the ultimate Oasis fan, but to me, the first couple records have a power about them because of that aspirational thing that Boston has. And then once they attain their dreams, that aspirational thing that powered their music and was their fuel disappears. Yeah. I totally agree. And I, I think it's a really common problem. You don't run out of things to write about, but the pathos slips from your hands. It's a common problem, but not every band uses that aspirational fuel as you know songwriting grist for the mill. So if you choose that as your grist for the mill, you're screwed if you make it. Fair enough. Yeah. You know? So, Foreplay Long Time, what a song. Just under eight minutes, it's their second single. It peaked at number 22. In an interview for the Best of Boston CD, Schultz said that Foreplay was the first song he ever recorded and that he did it on a two-track machine in his basement. He also stated that it was the first piece of music he ever wrote. 
and that he wrote it as far back as 1969, which is why it sounds so fucking Prague. This is not the shit end of Prague. This is Prague that was written the same year that Crimson King came out. Schultz originally sang all the vocal parts to Long Time in his basement during the making of the demo album, but obviously Delp kicked it up a few hundred notches. Delp's voice is the only one heard on the studio recording. Schultz is playing several guitars, including lead electric on foreplay and rhythm acoustic on long time. The three electric guitar solos on long time are played by Barry Goudreau. Okay, let me first say that foreplay long time is my favorite song on balance on the record because I'm a sucker for Prague. I love how long they make you wait. It's that Prague mixed with pop to me yeah. that is really interesting. I love that it's called foreplay because that's yeah. exactly what it is. I just dig it. This is the one that I'm sort of most likely to put on or put on a mix or something like that. But I was curious to hear more about who's playing which guitar when. Not that it really matters, though, because what's interesting about the band is they have a very clear guitar approach. Yeah, I'm a guitar player, and I think the guitar is very forward-thinking for its time. I actually think he's playing a lot of stuff that's way more Eddie Van Halen and just, you know, shooting into the 80s of kind of heavy metal or neoclassical Ingwey Malmsteen kind of stuff, right? It doesn't sound like other 70s guitar. It's very fluttery. It has a lot of those triplets. Like you said, it's inspired by classical music. So I'm just imagining that Tom Schultz must have written these parts, even if he handed them to another guitar player. Anyway, I think the guitar playing is more revolutionary even than it gets credit for, just because of when it came out. Based on what you're saying, the prog into pop thing and the deft handling of both sides of the fence, when the song segues out of being an instrumental and kicks into the, the long time part, it just goes for it. That trans transition couldn't be any more deftly pulled off. You know, when it fades up and then you get the power of that to go from the noodling, but proficient noodling and involving noodling of foreplay to man, are you just pulled into this second part? It's great. No, it is noodles, but they're great noodles. I think they're really well-placed, well-planned noodles, but it has that kind of fluid feel throughout all the guitar playing. I really like that style a lot, but I think it can get wanky really quickly if you're not careful, if you're not grounded in the concept of melody and you don't plan your shots appropriately. But I think Boston, especially on this record, does it really well. Well, that's side one. And to be honest with you, it's all downhill from here. I like side two. Side two's really good. It's not side one. So we're at the head of side two. Talk to me about rock and roll, Ben. Well, I think I just have a thing for songs about being in a band. I actually have a playlist that I sometimes add to when I when I find a new song like this of songs about the concept of being in a band telling the story of the band to me that's just a great song topic you have songs like it's a long way to the top if you want to rock and roll mm-hmm. yeah. sultans of swing range life by pavement I just like people talking about the hardships of being in a band so that's just an immediate win for me but the odd thing about this one is that it's fantasy I love the idea of a self mythologizing story song like the mamas and papas creaky alley the problem here is, and not that it's a huge issue, but let's look at the lyrics. Well, we were just another band out of Boston on the road trying to make ends meet, playing all the bars, sleeping in our cars, and we practiced right out on the street. 
That didn't happen. Schultz himself says that the song is just pure fantasy because the band never played live or toured at the time the song was written. You know, I'm not looking to savagely tear it apart or anything, but for me, they're already kind of crossing over into generic territory that, to me, does their music and vibe no favors. I don't dislike the song, but my favorite thing about it are Sib Hashian's stuttered fills. The and stuttered fills are great. Yeah, I agree. yeah, yeah. They're so good. And Delp always hits it out of the park. To me, Sib and Delp are the two stars of the show here. Yeah, I feel that. And I think when you're comparing this song to the first three songs, to the first side of songs we talked about, then fair enough. It pales in comparison. I could have heard this from a lot of bands, probably. It sounds a little more generic. I agree. But I think of it as the one I haven't heard as often on classic rock radio that I still appreciate. And even if Boston didn't go through these exact trials and tribulations of being in a band, millions of bands have, so it rings true. Are you a Smokin' fan? You know, Smokin' was actually one of my, probably my least favorite song on the record. I get, yeah, yeah. I do like the rhythmic elements of it that kind of got you moving, but yeah. this is the one that felt the most just mediocre bar bands to me. Just as generic was, uh, although I haven't heard it, an early version of the song, which was written and recorded in 1973 and called Shaken. After years of sitting with this song, they realized it should be called Smokin'. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, you know, in a head-shaking twist of events, Clear Channel included it on a list of songs that were not recommended for broadcasting after 9-11. Yeah, okay. Makes sense. I'm not a huge fan of Smokin'. It's okay. It's a good song. Not, it's not a great song. My favorite song on the second side is Easily Hitch a Ride which is the next one. Originally titled San Francisco Day with lyrics that start in, in New York and then planning to hitch a ride to head for the other side. This was the first song that Delp re-recorded after the original Mother's Milk vocalist left. It's always been, like I said, my favorite song in the second side. And it does, to me, have the mysterious majesty of side one. So to me, the only one that could really hang with the big boys on that first slab. It always struck me like a folk tune with a big cymbal-rich freakout of an instrumental break. I've always liked the catchy chorus, but I mainly love the verses. I love the elegiac lead guitar work that leads into the coda. That shit is just majestic. Um, yeah. And no matter how hardened you are, it'll make you a fucking believer in the power of good old <laughs> rock and roll. What's your relationship with this one? Yeah, I dig it. It's the, kind of the softer side of Boston, at least in the verses, which I do like. I like that mode. It's funny how I think what they're trying to do a lot of times is, what's the recipe for a Boston song? Acoustic guitar arpeggiation, the fuzz tone, big hits on the guitar, the big harmonies, the hand claps. By the way, much to Schultz's chagrin, it's mainly Delp. It's not the songwriting. It's not anything except for Delp's voice. And it must have killed him. That must have killed Schultz. It's interesting to think that a guy who wanted the perfect band mostly did it himself. I mean, maybe that really says something about his psyche and then realized and found the perfect lead singer for his project. Totally agree to that. But I just think in most cases, if people were wanting to be that mastermind persona, it just seems odd to me that he didn't stock the entire band and record with killers. Yeah, I think the heart of the tension in Boston is that the most distinctive feature of the music is someone outside of the control freak who's mainly responsible for it. <laughs> 
unfortunately, that's kind of the thing you can't change. You can work on your singing voice and you can certainly get a lot better at singing, but you can't become an expert when you don't have the pipes given to you. Right. As opposed to guitar or piano, you can just practice six hours a day and you will get really, really good. It doesn't work that way with your voice, sadly. Right, right. Something About You is the second to last track. And interestingly, this record is sequenced chronologically. This was the last demo, so it was put as the second to last track. And then the final track is the most recent song. So it's actually like a chronological diary of their time as Mother's Milk into Boston. Something About You is a good song, but you can feel the inspiration running thin by this point. It feels like they're starting to repeat themselves a little yeah. bit. And I, I think that's going to be my critique of a lot of the rest of the, the catalog, honestly. Yeah. It's the inverse of what the compliment I gave them earlier, which is they establish what it is to be Boston what the sound is and then they hit it but you realize that it is a box that's going to contain you and so i think you have songs like this which on the face of that first of all it's beautifully produced beautifully mixed you can pretty much say that about everything almost everything they do you know that's kind of stuff is always on point but the songwriting is just starting to feel a little samey much more so even on the last track let me take you home tonight it's very funny and apropos that at the end of all this michigas they do their first song that they hadn't really been chipping away at as Mother's Milk, and it's unquestionably the weakest track on the album. I rarely make it all the way through. It's so funny how the air escapes the balloon before they're even done with their first record. (laughs) (laughs) You know? Yeah. You know, we sometimes complain about the sequencing of albums, and I do imagine that it's sometimes hard. You have a batch of songs, you care about all of them, and you go, which should be first, you know, which should be second, which should be last? And one way of doing it, if you could have that prescience that it's seems like Tom Schultz did is just go best to worst. And yep. here we are. Yep. There's front loaded and then there's just, yeah, he programmed it best to worst. You're absolutely right. I don't know if he did it intentionally. Yeah, I feel like you got to think about the sides a little more though. I think if I was resequencing it, I might put foreplay as the first song on the second side, just to give you a really strong start to the second That's side. That's a great idea. Or even the last song period. Yeah, I could see that. Yep. So, To me, FM rock radio, corporate rock, and other terms that ultimately feel distasteful and leave a bitter, chalky undertaste, this is just the absolute pinnacle. Funnily enough, not even the entire thing is the pinnacle, just the first side. But those three songs alone are just a thing of mystery. What specifically pulls me in is the idea or fact that somehow these have become super personal tales, aspirationally speaking, of one man's wish, fulfillment, fantasy of being part of the firmament. Underdogs dreaming of the life that they've seen on TV and here on the radio, and then ultimately being able to jump through to the other side, again, just like Oasis, wish fulfillment rock where the band acts as avatars for the loser listener who'll never get a shot. (laughs) So, you know, for this, I'm conflicted because it is not a perfect album, but in some ways it is an absolute five-star record. But I really am going to just have to be realistic and give it four and seven-eighths stars because the whole is greater than the sum of its parts for sure. I went ahead and gifted it five stars. The reason being, I think they achieved exactly what they set out to achieve. And I think that the production elevates the weaker songs, and I think it sends the strong songs completely into the stratosphere, as we talked about. I was also thinking a little bit in terms of their specific catalog. I think if you want your pure, uncut Boston, this is where you have to go, for sure. 
Hi, I'm Dave Gebro. I threw my career as a licensed hearing instrument specialist in the trash, sold my house, and moved to the East Coast with my wife and four-year-old son in order to focus on making the ultimate podcast for music obsessives thrive. Now I need your help. Although Discography is rated in the top 2% of all podcasts globally, the economics of this thing are tricky. Becoming a member of Discography's Patreon gives you access to over 100 more exclusive episodes. And moving forward now every Sunday for only $5 a month as a private first class, you get our new weekly show by and for Discography's Patreon family, the Discography Soldiers of Sound podcast. It'll be hosted by Rudy Fishman, and given his sociopathic tendencies, I'm sure it'll have a lunatic's take over the asylum edge to it. If all you want to do is show some love, there's now finally a $1 tier. Don't miss out. Become a recruit and get your personal personalized backstage pass for a buck and for the cheapskates homeless people and all the bums sponging off mom and dad don't care just join it's now completely free to join as a basic member and it'll be the only place you'll be able to get our upcoming lou barlow Corey hansen mark robinson comp metal machine muzak as well as the triple album rock opera elf harmony i created with joe kennedy as the mentally regarded and the ability to purchase one-off patreon episodes that's it back to the show Let's talk about its ascension through the ranks. So the album broke out of Cleveland first, and the following week it had been added at 392 stations. Had the record been unsuccessful, Schultz, who was then 29 years old, had planned to abandon music the first few weeks that the record was out. He was still a Polaroid. He wasn't going to make any kind of decision until he saw what was going on. And he felt pessimistic about the success until the album sold 200,000 copies. And then he told Rolling Stone, and all of a sudden, I realized I was in the music business. I got word word on what the sales figures were while I was still at Polaroid full time. It wasn't easy staying there two more weeks. What were some of those conversations like at the Polaroid offices when he's like, I'm out of here. Oh, oh, really? You got another job? No, I'm a rock and roll star now. <laughs> like, <laughs> what the hell are you talking about? He's like in his office, like looking at uh, Cashbox, and it's saying he's only sold 175,000, and so he's actually picking up the phone when his boss calls. <laughs> <laughs> Within two months after it was released, the album was certified gold. Within 30 days of that, it had sold another 500,000 copies, and by November '76, it went platinum. By January '77. It had sold two million, and it's just one of the fastest selling debut albums in rock history. By 1986, it had sold over nine million domestically, and it went diamond in 1990. By November of 2003, so 20 years ago, 17 million copies had been sold. In just America, worldwide, the album has sold 20 million copies. It's the second best-selling debut record of all time in the U.S. after Guns N' Roses' Appetite for Destruction, and it's the eighth best-selling album in U.S. history. Wow. The first tour in support of the record was a short six-week promo club tour throughout the Midwest, but they very soon found themselves on a nationwide tour that lasted 10 months. Of course, the album is included in the book 1001 Albums You Must Hear Before You Die, which means... Which means maybe we'll be talking about this at some point. Eventually, eventually, (laughs) yes. So you give it five, right? Yeah, I'm giving it five. All right, 1978's Don't Look Back. This is an interesting pivot. Not really a pivot. 
you know, what I'm remarking on most is that it took two years for the follow-up, which even at the time was a long time. And the thing that characterizes this record more than kind of anything else is that Schultz felt like he was rushed. So we're going to see this now as a guy who's a control freak. He likes to take his time. He had experienced that throughout the 60s and 70s and became used to that, obviously. Yeah, that's the one thing the recording industry will not allow you to do, is my understanding. Get cracking, monkey. Write some more songs. (laughs) Yeah. So Don't Look Back comes out two years after the first one. It sold over one million copies in the first 10 days of its release. And by 1996, had gone seven times platinum. This also marked the beginning of the band's legal fight with Epic because, like I said, Schultz claimed that Epic executives pushed him and the band into releasing the album before they felt it was ready. He also said that the album was ridiculously short. It needed another song. And their next record wasn't released for another eight years, by which time the band and record label had parted ways and were fighting a courtroom battle that Boston won ultimately. This is by far the quickest turnaround of a Boston follow-up. It was recorded during 1977 and 1978, again in Schultz's hideaway studio, except for the piano on A Man I'll Never Be. It was originally to be titled Arrival, but ABBA released an album by that name. So Don't Look Back was chosen, which is a much better title anyway. Arrival should have been the first one. What's your thoughts on this record before we kick into the uh, actual songs themselves? I mean, it starts pretty strong, but it's definitely more of the same. And I think it begs this question we just touched on it with the last record, but if a band so clearly and confidently establishes their sound and only their sound on record number one, what are we really expecting from them in the sophomore effort? Like, I found myself feeling like, oh yeah, I've kind of heard this before. It's Mm -hmm. weaker than the debut, I think, on songwriting, but it's still pretty good. I mean, if you're fiending for Boston, it kind of does the job. I love the idea of anyone fiending for Boston. (laughs) (laughs) need a fix, man. I need a fix. Yeah, I need my fix. Just like you said, it starts really strong. You got the title track that kicks the gate down, and it easily could have been on the first record. There's only two or three songs that could hang with album one. You know, Schultz is no fool. He knows where his bread's buttered. Don't Look Back is a perfect follow-up. Sib Hashian's on fire. Schultz's starburst arpeggios in the chorus are absolute perfection. The 70s FM song breakdown in the middle is like a caplet of Prague snuck into the kingdom. It's a, it's a classic. It's a great yeah. Song. Yeah, they follow the formula and yeah. they get more juice out of the fruit, let's say, you know. Yeah. It's not a sugar cube with no blood in it just yet, but I think other than the first song there are a couple other highlights, but in general I just felt a little tired of them. Yeah. <laughs> He squeezed the lemon till the juice was running down his leg, but it was really just a trickle of pre-cum. Yeah, ex- yeah exactly. <laughs> to me, this is what, what it basically is, is a saggy middle. This is like your stereotypical American male, saggy and puffy in the middle. After Don't Look Back, you got a couple other strong tracks. An unfortunate thing where track two, The Journey, is a short instrumental track that links the opening track and the third track, and that became a new part of their formula where they had like a throwaway instrumental link track interstitial thing, which I don't know why that became a thing for them, because how is that 
I, I don't understand how that uh, becomes an important point of them as a band. But yeah, I agree. It, it really sucks the energy out of the room. I understand that there are many different ways to sequence an album and how to think about it. Personally, I've always thought about it a lot like you would craft a live set, right? In that modality, I think you want to obviously start strong. But in track two, you need to kick it up a notch. It's not time for a cool down yet. That maybe can happen around three or four. Just to know that we're dealing with a madman here. Tom Schultz cites The Journey as his favorite song on any of Boston's first three albums, but wished that it were longer. What? Yeah. What happened to this guy? When, when, when was that? Well, that when was were those words spoken? 1987. Jesus. Which is a long time ago. Then track three is the last really good song for quite a while on the record. It's easy. It's easy slaps, man. I don't remember this one getting at me on previous listens, but I really love this song. The guitar solos are doubled and so pro that you could legitimately just start laughing as a viable reaction to being hit with that kind of pomp and circumstance. This almost feels like ELO's out of the blue to me. I believe it was a fumbled ball not releasing this and releasing A Man I'll Never Be instead. Yeah, I agree. It's Easy definitely beats A Man I'll Never Be. And in fact, when I was listening to A Man I'll Never Be, I was thinking, man, they're actually starting to recycle some of those guitar riffs. I I couldn't quite place exactly where I had heard them before. But to me, that's an even slightly greater sin than just feeling like the songwriting is kind of similar, that they're following a songwriting formula. Yeah, give us something new, Boston, at least in in the singles releases. Unfortunately, A Man I'll Never Be is something new from where I'm sitting, and that is the power ballad. The problem is six minutes and 40 seconds, so overlong. It feels like we are the champions, but that song had a lot of meaning that was kind of propping it up, and it's yeah. a good melody. You know, this paved the way for Amanda and other aspects of Boston that have absolutely no bearing on quality. It sounds like bad Steve Perry journey, you know, and it is worth noting, however, that Rolling Stone at the time, their critic Keith Emerson, I swear to God, compared this song to Stairway to Heaven. That's a stretch. Yeah, I'd say. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you referenced We Are the Champions, which that's an interesting touchstone for this song. And I think not only is this just on a songwriting level and a melodic level not as strong, but one of the things this band suffers from is that it's not that the vocals are an afterthought, but they're clearly layered on top of something else. Mm. Whereas I think when you listen to something like We Are the Champions, you can tell that the whole band is being dragged along by Freddie Mercury's vocal. That's right. that's what how the arrangement feels. Do you know what I mean? And that's I think to get across the power in the ballad, you mentioned Journey, and I think as they go along, they trend more into kind of this 80s power ballad modality, which I just, I can't even think of a great example from that genre. My power ballad guilty pleasure would have to be Kid Rock. It's on Devil Without a Cause. Only God knows why I, li- I, I kind of like Don't tell anyone, please. But this is a no-go for me. It's a total no-go. Then it just keeps going. <laughs> Feeling Satisfied is so redolent to the first record. There is about 16 moments throughout the song that are ripped off from other better Boston songs, primarily Peace of Mind. This is practically a sequel, and it is not a good song, and neither is Party. Yeah, it could be Peace of Mind Part 2. And songwriters do do this, even good ones, where they go, that song was good. I should write another one like that. I imagine that has you did some good material over the years, but in this case, we noticed, yeah. Tom. Right, right. We see you. We're looking. Uh, Party
Party is super generic, just like the title. You know, from a music fan's point of view, they're basically degenerating right in front of our very eyes. So <laughs> Party, which was co-written by Delp and Schultz, is like a party rock and roll song as written by a version of AI that was around in the 1970s. That's how archaic and un-party starting it sounds. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you. Then Used to Bad News is at least a decent song. Finally, an unshitty song after three clunkers in a row. Used to Bad News was actually written by Delp, the only song on the album on which Schultz did not receive a writing credit. And also worth noting, it's the only song on which Goudreau is the sole lead guitarist. Tom played all the other instruments except drums. That one I like, I don't love, but the last song I love, Don't Be Afraid, is great. Delp, what a voice. Seriously, I mean, regardless of the inarguable soullessness of the band, Delp has a deep power within him as a vocalist, and the song achieves something akin to Louie Louie-esque party womps, and that somehow sells the whole thing, which for Boston is, to me, a very impressive feat. The middle section especially, when all the instrumentation falls away, is really impressive. This is my favorite of the album as well, Don't Be Afraid. It's your very favorite? I'll put it this way, it jumped out to me the most, because yeah. I think a lot of the other stuff felt like a little bit of a rehash, even though it was pleasant enough. You know, it kind of rolled off my back a little bit. This one made me perk my ears up and go, oh yeah, this is cool, it rocks. The rhythmic thing they're doing right at the beginning just feels a little fresh. And uh, yeah, it just pops with some energy. It's unsurprisingly one of the demos that Schultz worked on before getting a record contract. It was the only one that hit the second record instead of the first. When I learned that, you know, just in the last day or so, that made sense to me. So yeah. Yeah, it totally checks out. So for an album called Don't Look Back, it sure takes a hell of a lot of inspiration (laughs) from from that debut. It's like a great piece of advice that Schultz seems to have never actually taken. It's not a bad record, and there are moments of true greatness on it, but through giant chunks of this thing, its soulless, uninspired, filler-spewing formula is too much for me to bear fully and totally with all my being. So as great as some of it is, when the quality-ometer starts to flag, Holy shit, is it noticeable how precipitously quickly the quality control actually plummets. It's funny how brief the spell of their particular muse lasted. It's already on its way out. And on some of these tracks, the muse has noticeably left the room. It's an oddly shaped record. Excellent slides into the toilet for three tracks, right smack dab in the middle of the record. And then we slowly crawl our way back just in time to reach excellence again on the final track. I'm going to give this three and three quarter stars. went farther down. I think it's a long way from the top, sadly. So I I ended up giving it 2.5 stars. Listen, I get it. It's hard for artists, one, to turn out material. The comment I said earlier, you have your whole life to write your first record and nine months to write your second, or in this case, two years. I get why that's hard. Second thing that's hard is you're successful with a very specific thing, a sound, the Boston sound. You created your own sound. Great. It's yours pretty much forever. And then your second record comes along and there's a lot of pressure to do the same thing, which will inherently be watered down as opposed to evolving. So I get why that's a challenge and I'm demanding maybe too much of you, Tom Schultz, but 2.5 stars, you definitely looked back and it didn't help you. No. And that's a fair rating. I feel like I was 
generous with three and three quarters. But to Tom's credit, I think the only thing he agreed with the record company about is the unnecessary aspect of the band evolving. Why mm-hmm. evolve when in 1969 he was working towards the perfect idea of a band? All he wanted to do was crystallize a vision and keep it crystallized. So phase three corporate diarrhea 1980 to the present and into the future oh hi dave again i gotta tell you about the next tier as a lieutenant you get an ad-free substantially elongated director's cut of every episode and you'll be getting the shows an entire week early from now on and now back to our expertly crafted program First thing I want to mention, even though I'm not gonna, we're not gonna actually rate it, is 1980s Barry Goudreau, which is his self-titled solo record. It's the only studio album by Goudreau, and it features Brad Delp on vocals, Sib Hashing on drums, and Fran Cosma, who would later join Boston in 1991. And so, if you're looking for something that is similar to the first two Boston records, it would be more this than Third Stage. Yeah, I would agree with that i listen to it it's got some energy to it sounds like the boston sound for sure yeah and with what you just said i do want to address one thing which is although we're not reviewing this what's immediately apparent is that without schultz the guitars lose all that sparkle like the high end has no definition here so it sounds like muddy generic early 80s rock not great not bad not much of anything but Hell, if pressed, I'd probably have to say it towers over later Boston product. But what it does demonstrate is what Tom Schultz brings to the table as a producer. This sounds like shit. Tom Schultz, the producer, is nearly unassailable. I think that he gets what he's going for sonically very consistently. I think all these records sound clean. All the mixes give you a lot of, like you said, sparkle. They highlight the right instruments at the right time. I just think all the tones of all the individual instruments are very well dialed in there's clearly care put into that aspect that's what i'm referring to you say clean i say antiseptic there's different kinds of producers some are just there to make sure that the clarity remains tip top but then others like an eno or someone like that are going to be less pragmatic and are going to be more about providing inspiration this guy there's no inspiration to be found no i think that's fair and i think that's the challenge of being your own producer for your own songs you there is a lot of value in having someone outside the band to tell you when it's good or to tell you when you've gotten your ideas across effectively. Okay, so now we're moving into 1986. I was 14. How old were you? Six. I thought you were really old. I'm just kidding. (laughs) This came out September 23, 1986. Third stage, third record, same formula, same cover, same studio, same track two, spaceship, whatever. I bought it when it came out. Honestly, the most memorable thing to me is how the tape smelled. Do you remember how those old tapes? (laughs) I don't know if you were a fan of this, but do you remember how those old tapes used to smell? Uh, Maybe not. Sure. No, I do. Yeah, I I bought plenty of tapes. So there was a kind of tape that they would release that had a particularly interesting smell to it. Boston's third stage had a five-star smell. <laughs> so, <laughs> and that's the last nice thing we'll say about that's it. A la- that's exactly right. Amanda became, as well as the first track on the record, the lead single. The album itself eventually certified four times platinum. They're slipping, but they're still outselling everyone else. So he goes to MCA after winning his battle with Epic. Amanda, which was actually written in 1980, which is when they began 
can't work on this record became the band's very only number one single, which is insane to me. Did you know that? I read that and I was definitely surprised. I've heard the tune, but I didn't feel nearly as familiar with it as so many of the other tunes. And Can't Just Say, which is on this, is their last top 40 hit to date. Third stage went to number one, stayed there for four weeks. It's the first Boston LP to feature electronic drum samples. The first to feature songs not written by either Schultz or Brad Delp, which to me means trouble in motherfucking paradise. <laughs> it's also the first Boston LP without original members Barry Goudreau, Sib Hashian, and Fran Sheehan. Hashian and Sheehan were included in the early recording sessions, and Sheehan received a writing credit. Jim Mazdi plays drums on most of the album. Uh, also, the LP was the first Boston recording to use the Schultz invented Rockman guitar processor. I don't know exactly what the fuck that thing does, but he's into... Me neither. Yeah, he does all these things that Guitar Magazine would fillet him over. Amanda, I don't know what to say about Amanda. I never really liked it. It's so middle of the road. I tried to love it. I really did, but I just don't. I feel like this record for me, I was coming at these later Boston records pretty fresh in preparation for this. And so to me, there's definitely more cheese here, but I was open to embracing a little bit of cheese because I feel like at least it's them evolving and embracing change. So maybe I'm going to surprise you a little bit. This isn't really my style, but I like Amanda just fine. It's a cheesy, cheesy ballad. It's got some cool guitar tones to it, as you just mentioned. Yeah. I I don't know. It's got the little never ending story element to it. You know, it's definitely we're squarely in the 80s now. Like that is clear. I at least appreciated that there was some evolution of the sound. And so that's maybe I bumped it up a little bit in my mind. That's interesting. This is a band I'm absolutely not interested in evolution from. Some I am. For whatever reason, this always strikes me as the band I come back to to demonstrate this point. But a band like the Sundays, who I loved, I never wanted them to change. I just wanted them to release just album after album, which they did not, of the same kind of style because I love that style. Hmm. Uh, Then other bands, it's like if they're not changing with each record, it feels like they're drowning in quicksand. Track two is the only song I think is a great song on this record. And that's We're Ready. The riff is totally undeniable. It's the only one on this record that I feel could hang with the dynamic duo of self-titled and Don't Look Back. Terrific engaged use of dynamics in the various sections of the tune. And I love what I'm assuming to be Delp's background vocals. I love We're Ready. Yeah, We're Ready's cool. I dug that. That's funny. I kind of dug Amanda too. Then you have the uh, (laughs) needlessly wordy title of the launch a countdown b ignition <laughs> c third stage separation completely unnecessary cooldown track just the dumbest title i've ever heard on any rock record ever well here's the thing i mean i don't mind the title but this is not prog when you title something like this i know what i'm expecting i'm expecting fucking tarkus right and instead this is the worst kind of 1980s quasi metal drivel it reminds me of i don't know if you remember the scene in boogie nights where the two of them are recording a demo it's after you know the cocaine has taken hold and they go make that really you've got the touch you've got the touch so this reminds me of you've got the touch and yeah i hate it yeah it's terrible i agree listen i'm not really defending the record I don't want to listen to this band. I'm just saying that, in my opinion, on the second record, they tried to recreate the magic of the first record and fell short. And so they're like, well, I guess we got to keep moving. I guess we'll just ponder what we should do for six years <laughs> and then fart out some product. So here's the farted out product. <laughs> 
So when you become a major, you get yet another show on Wednesday. Either Discography's The Top Ten, our Buried Treasure show, Rock Cousteau, our slag-off show, Queasy Listening, or exclusive limited series like The Private Press with Paul Major. And if you've got no financial worries to speak of, keep in mind that some of the higher Patreon tiers allow you to actually advertise on the show, choose the bands we cover, or even some of the guests we get. For the price of a cup of coffee a week, you can ensure my family's fed, build a music library that'll be the envy of your block, and connect to a thriving community of music maniacs all at the same time. Don't risk feeling badly about yourself by not giving. Patreon.com slash Discograffiti. Once again, that's Patreon.com slash Discograffiti. Cool the Engines is my second favorite song on it, and it reminds me of Airless 1980s Kiss. At least it still sounds like Boston, though. I noted Cool the Engines is my favorite track on the record, yeah. This is also the last one with Sib Hashian. Sib Hashian's only on tracks one through four. Then I really have nothing to say for the rest of the record. I do like, I think I like it. It kind of sounds like on the shitty end of 38 Special, so let's call it 37 Special. Uh, <laughs> the last song worth noting, I think. The, yeah, the rest of the songs are pretty unmemorable. But take a song like... I think I like it. From the very first second of the song, you get that super reverbed out snare hit, Mm -hmm. and I'm already out. I'm already disengaged from the song at that point. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Here's part of the problem production-wise for me. They are such offenders of going with that 1980s digitized sound, and everyone did, okay? Even the worst-sounding record in the universe is probably Neil Young's Everybody's Rockin'. I mean, everybody, (laughs) everybody was doing it. They had no choice. But the problem is, with very little bottom end, Delp's voice used to soar, and now it pierces. So that's a problem for me. And Third Stage is literally the perfect definition of a mediocre album. It sits right there in the middle for the rest of the time. Nothing great, nothing bad. I give it two stars. So before I give it the rating, I want to posit that maybe Tom Schultz thinks the magic of the band is in the embrace and exploration of recording technology. Maybe that's part of the problem. And I do think there's something to, because that's not the soul of the band. That's not what made them great on the first record. It was a helpful ladder step for him, obviously, but it's not the thing itself. I do think that artists have to try to embrace new technology. They sometimes fail miserably, and that can be okay. But if you consider yourself an artist, part of the deal is embracing what's new and trying to figure out how to use new tools. I think that's one of the reasons the Beatles are great. I think it's one of the reasons Radiohead are great. So for me, perhaps surprisingly, I bumped it up to three stars. I don't want to listen to this. I don't, this is this record really isn't for me, but I think it's better than the second record for someone out there. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, to me, the sound kills it before I even am turning over the stones of the songs themselves. Um, I did buy it, and I tried to like it more than I did. Ultimately, from the vantage point of what we're going to be talking about here, it is to the later albums as the first album is to this one. This is a classic compared to the rest. Compared to the rest, yeah. It's, it goes pretty sharply downhill from here, and it's yeah. already gone sharply downhill, as you pointed out. So yeah. But then from here on in, we're bottom feeding down with the lobsters. That's right. I need to make sure I I left some room to really talk about how terrible these other records are. Got got a grade on a curve. (laughs) 
So after the success of this record, Boston began planning a follow-up and writing for their 1994 album, Walk On. That process began in 1988. However, because of all the friction and disagreements between Schultz and Delp, Delp left the band in 1989 to join Barry Goudreau in forming a new band called RTZ. Haven't heard any of their stuff, but that's what happened. Soon after, Fran Cosmo was hired and introduced as the new lead singer. Delp returned to Boston to assist in the writing on the title track and its reprise and shared lead vocals on the tour for Walk On, but did not sing on the album. So it's important to know that because if you're coming in from here forward to listen to Boston, sometimes it's going to be with Brad, sometimes it's not. And for me, the most distinctive feature about this band is the vocalist. Yeah, I would have to agree. And let's also point out that Tom Schultz must be such a wild asshole. For someone to quit a band like this, they had to have been touring and making significant cash, playing pretty big venues, singing more than a feeling and long time and stuff like that. Like that had to be a pretty good job in music, right? Yeah. So to walk away from that, you got to really dislike this guy. Yeah. Apparently the relationship between the two of them was really rocky for the rest of Brad's life, which we'll get to because it's the most tragic thing about this outfit is what happened to him. But Walk On, which I couldn't even mention by name before doing the research for this, did not get to number one. It peaked at number seven. It was certified platinum. It actually did go platinum. How the hell did this sell that many records? Back then, everything went platinum. <laughs> everything. <laughs> this feels like Motley Crue for soccer moms or something. <laughs> that it does. So so the coolest thing about Schultz is that he is apparently very dedicated to different causes. For him, it's domestic abuse and animal cruelty. So the final eight pages of the album's booklet were called Walk On Against Violence and Cruelty, which is a clunker of a phrase, but at least his heart's in the right place. Except for the title track, which Brad helped to write, easily the best song here by a fucking mile. Unfortunately, it's also part of a suite, and the rest of the <laughs> sweet it's awful so i can say i got nothing really to say about the songs on the record but if there's any distinctive element of boston it is dope and so without him it sounds like any number of piece of shit quasi metal bands trying to inject power ballad moves into an already middle-aged sounding sagging framework that probably doesn't have even a sliver of appeal for anyone listening to this show i would give the record one star for the title track alone which isn't even great it's just that it sounds like boston it's one star for sounding like the band i sat down to listen to yeah yeah i also gave it one star i could not believe that this came out in 1994. I know it's because they toiled over it in the studio for years and years because it seems so locked in that hair metal 80s as you've already said. It's just a funny anecdote to think about Tom Schultz toiling away on songwriting in 1987 or something when Poison is is one of the biggest bands in the world and then by the time 1994 rolls around no one gives a shit about any of that music it's right. so passe and yet they have this record but yeah one yeah. star for Walk On I think that's fair and generous I'd have to say <laughs> <laughs> well it, it, it does is. get worse it does get worse it does if you're it listening does. to Walk On and wondering does it get worse it does yeah the answer is yes it definitely does 1997 
greatest hits. We're only looking at four songs because the rest of it has been previously released. So, by the way, Tom Schultz has discontinued a number of releases because of it falling short of his expectations sonically. This was another one. Your greatest hits album. The sound quality wasn't up to his standards, so he remastered it in 2009 with a slightly different track listing. So we're looking at four songs here. I won't even tell you what the songs are called because, honestly, for the new tracks, I'm giving the whole thing zero stars. Yeah, I would have to agree. It was tempting to give him like 0.25 stars because I think there is another low point, and I'm assuming we don't go negative on this, but these are really, really terrible. So I'm signing off with 0.25 stars. That's incredibly generous. <laughs> you know, the thing about this that is just like really disturbing is that these four songs bookend the record. So instead of doing what he should have done in a sequencing no-brainer and stuff these tracks at the end, you have to start the CD with two horrible songs that have nothing to do with what make Boston good or worthwhile in the first place. I honestly think that if I had bought that Greatest Hits album not knowing that these new songs were on there and I'd put it on, I would have taken it out of the CD player and I would have thrown away yeah so yeah that is an insane sequencing decision and i guess this also comes from what i think was happily a brief period in time where artists put new songs onto greatest hits albums so that you had to buy them which was total bullshit the other one i'm thinking of is tom penny and the heartbreakers greatest hits where they released mary jane's last dance on the greatest hits album it's a good song though and it's stan lynch's bow out as a drummer Ah, nice. That's a crucial song to have if you're a Tom Petty fan. So if you really know what you're doing, you're adding value to that sacred space on that Greatest Hits record. If you don't treat it as you got to come up with something as good as what else is on there, you're taking a shit on your legacy. Absolutely. I totally agree. Yeah, it's on the Greatest Hits record for time immemorium, and it will be reflected on your soul. Tom yeah. Schultz. So 2002, Corporate Diarrhea. I'm sorry, Corporate America. This is their fifth album. It introduced Anton Cosmo and Kimberly Dom as both band members and songwriters. This is the last Boston album to feature Delp. And thank God, Mark, the final appearance of Frank Cosmo. It's a different time and a different story. Within the first week of release, it had charted at number 42 and sold 32,000 copies. And of course, Schultz pulled it when there was a dispute with the record company during that time. So there's one song that I think is decent, which is I Had a Good Time, which has to be their best song since Third Stage, mainly because it acts as a five years premature eulogy for Delp. It's a good song Mm. to remember Delp by. But other than that, I got nothing. Nothing, sir. I was astounded by how exquisitely bad this was. Yeah. Full butt rock. Like they went all the way in. And <laughs> listen, the other thing, it's not on Spotify, as you alluded to. It was pulled from streaming services, I guess, at some point. But I felt glad that I had to seek this out on YouTube because I don't want the Spotify algorithm knowing that I ever listened to this. <laughs> there are actually five separate vocalists on this record. Five. And although there's actually one decent enough tune on it, there is absolutely nothing at all to recommend this aside from being the final contribution from Brad Delp, who is the true soul of Boston in my heart. I'll give this one star. I'm giving it zero stars. I could barely get through this one, if I'm Mm -hmm. being honest. It was hard to listen to, and I don't say that lightly. But I would say that if there's someone out there listening to this that only knows the Boston hits and, and loves them, I strongly recommend you give this a listen. 
just for how terrible it is. The next song, God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen, an edit made for iTunes was renamed God Rest Ye Metal Gentlemen. And by the way, Boston are not metal. No. Great that he imagined himself as that, but Schultz, I'm sorry, man, you don't have a metal band. A quote that I'm going to repeat here from Schultz, which is terrifying, is this was my chance to Bostonize one of my favorite Christmas carols. I had so much fun with this one. I think I'll have to try a few more. <laughs> I'm so thankful he never got around to that. I'll give this song one star. Yeah, one star is okay. It has some nice parts about it, but the t- from the title to, yeah, the, the concept of Bostonizing a Christmas song, yeah, w- one star is, sounds about right. I'm okay with yeah. this. And then 2003, that next year, I believe it's the final work by Delp, the Delp and Goudreau LP. We're not covering this, but the reason I'm mentioning it is because in 2007, Brad Delp killed himself. Do you know about the circumstances leading up to all this and what happened? I do not. It's really sad and really fucked up. On March 9th in 2007, he poisoned himself with carbon monoxide in New Hampshire. They discovered his body on the floor of his master bathroom. Two charcoal grills were placed in the bathtub and lit. And the reason for his suicide, a lot of people had felt at that time that it was because of his contentious relationship with Schultz. But apparently what had happened is Brad was engaged to be married to a woman named Pamela Sullivan. Pamela's sister, her name is Meg. Meg and Delp, for whatever reason, were housemates for two and a half years. And Meg discovered a hidden camera planted in her room. And he would just, I guess, you know, watch her undress or what have you. And after Meg confronted him about it, Delp allegedly admitted to planting the camera. And Meg promised to tell Pamela, his fiance, about the camera. So Delp purchased the grills and committed suicide. Wow. That is... uh... Bummer. Yeah, seriously. So that is like, you know, a very, very unfortunate turn of events. Boston, no matter what, could never be a valid concern anymore. And then we have 2013's Life, Love, and Hope. Possibly the worst titled record I've ever heard about. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so bad. Yeah. And you know, Brad Delp's on the record because, you know, they sodomized his soul and used his vocals. Schultz said, I intentionally stayed close to the early Boston style on some of the songs. It's nothing. It's their first album in 11 years. What do you think about this fucking piece of shit? It's not good. That's for damn sure. But I did find it slightly more listenable than corporate America, just on a, on a personal level. But it's I, not good. I think it's, it's far worse. from good. Legitimately, like I did listen and just try to see like, where's the biggest misstep? There's there's not a single good song on this thing. And there's a lot of necrophilia going on here. You know, Schultz and Delp were like chalk and cheese. They just didn't get along. And, you know, if you think Schultz is slicing through to the heart of the matter after all these years, there's one song here called Somewhere and another one called Someone. We're just dealing with just straight up generics. It's the same shit, different toilet, half star. I also gave it a half star because I, I did want to separate it in my rating from corporate America, but it is bottom of the barrel for sure but if you came to this thinking this has got potential then you deserve it honestly you really deserve it anyone (laughs) anyone who's still listening i don't know what you're thinking or if it's just because it was a part of your life back in 1976 or 78 or 86 that felt special to you but this is just product so if i may i'd like to read the piece that i wrote about the overview and shape of their arc 
Tom Schultz was a man who, as a boy, had to clutch his football ridiculously close to his chest so the rest of the universe didn't take a shit on his dream and was forced into a corner for so long before he experienced anything resembling success that it at least sounds like he even came close to second-guessing those conceptions of perfection he'd originally envisioned for his group. The main problem with this formula of perfection is that he perfected it immediately and produced such an artifact of crystallized vision that there was absolutely nowhere to go but down and fucking down 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 did he go it gets bad insufferable even he withstood and transcended the corporate rock tag on the first record and some of the second based mainly on the aspirational grab of the background story but alas once the dream came true just like for oasis it became as mundane predictable and ultimately tragic as any old tale in rock Top three albums, number three, Third Stage, number two, Don't Look Back, number one, Boston. And for worst album, honestly, anything after Third Stage is horrible, just the worst. But I'll give it over to Life, Love, and Hope. There's something nice, though, about the linearity of the slide, right? Yeah, it's just as predictable as, you know, their concept as a band. It's, <laughs> it is a predictable slalom downhill. I'm guessing I know your top three. Number three is Don't Look Back, two is Third Stage, one is Boston? That's correct, yes. Okay. What's your least favorite? I think my least favorite is Corporate America. I had a hard time getting through it, which is not common for me. Well, this one is one that I was super excited about doing. Oddly, I started making notes for it with no person in mind to do the actual podcast back in 2022. So I, I've had the beginning of these notes sitting in my Google Drive for a long time, you know, for whatever reason and i was just psyched to do this band and i'm psyched that you did it with me because you get this shit yeah no thanks man i mean i love classic rock thanks for having me on it's been awesome talking about boston i do have one boston anecdote i want to relate it's going to wrap around to Boston and, and Boston's modern legacy, which is that some years back, I went and saw the band Fish at Madison Square Garden on a run of 13 shows. They played 13 nights at Madison Square Garden, and they called it the Baker's Dozen, and they sold out instantly 13 shows, and many of these fish heads probably went to all 13 shows, but I went to one show. I believe it was the last one, and the premise was that each night was going to be themed based on a donut, and they would hand out those donuts at Madison Square Garden on that individual night. So we had kind of been getting reports as we were getting ready to go to the show that on previous nights, you know, they had cinnamon donuts and whatever. They played Cinnamon Girl by Neil Young or something. We get there and they're handing out Boston cream donuts and Fish did a grand medley of Boston and cream songs, <laughs> which I believe in the set list is titled Sunshine of Your Feeling. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> and looped together all these different tunes it was awesome you know they did brave ulysses into long time back into more than a feeling you know it was this whole production right that's cool it was a lot of fun but i later heard them in an interview say that this was the premise this is the whole reason they set up the run of shows and had the donut concept was just so they would have an excuse to do a boston cream mashup <laughs> that's great i'm gonna say that for you patreon subscribers out there and for those who've not yet gotten in on the action the upcoming two shows that 
that we have for Patreon with Rob are going to be excellent. The first is a Patreon interview with Rob about the derivation of 1001 album complaints and what it's like to set up and deal with a podcast, and then his top 10 albums of all time. So stay tuned this week, because it's going to be a very Rob-centric, Rob-intensive week. Hell yeah. Rob, I like you. Down to your soul. Keep it up. (laughs) Thanks, brother. I appreciate it. We're definitely simpatico. Stay tuned, because next week, we've got Mark Robinson rating Unrest. It's the road to Imperial. A heartfelt discography thanks goes out to Rob Cassis, Rudy Fishman, my incredibly loyal fans, and especially the entire Patreon community, the Soldiers of Sound. I love every last one of you, and this show would not exist without you, my friends. Speaking of friends, it's high time for some new ones. They're in our Facebook group, Discography Soldiers of Sound. And the group's so damn good that with Patreon member Rudy Fishman's help, I even created a new Sunday show highlighting the goings-on of some of the more notable members out there. And the good news is only five bucks will get you the Sunday show. Back to our Facebook group. That's the best way to find out what's coming up on the show, but there's a hell of a lot more. You get recaps of the day in music history, the ability to pitch questions to guests, polls that put you in the driver's seat on guest and band decisions, and access to a thriving creative hub if you're looking for a collaborator. So make sure you don't miss out. You can find the link to the Discography Soldiers of Sound Facebook page right there in the show notes. And if you don't mess with the Zuck, no sweat. Just email me at info at discography.com and I'll keep you in the loop. So now that it's done and you want more, another way to dive even deeper into the boundless, lighter-hoisting pleasures of classic rock is to dive headfirst into our Black Sabbath series, 64 to 68, with the great Jim Florentine, our Battle Royale episode on the Eagles Hotel California with guest David Tabachman, that's episode 44, Jonathan Rado tackling Todd Rundgren, that's 37 and 40, Electric Light Orchestra with the great Zach Hart, that's 34 and 35, the tirelessly popular Nirvana episode, that's number 30, Badfinger, episode 16, Van Halen, episode 9, and Pink Floyd, episodes 1 and 2. Join us during the upcoming week for Discography's week-long 1001 Album Complaints Deep Dive. Of course, if you're a Patreon subscriber, then you're already a week ahead of the action, and you're listening to the following week's Mark Robinson Rates Unrest episode. But here's what's up this week. This Sunday, our $5 private tier can expect another episode of the brand new Discography Soldiers of Sound podcast. And then on Monday, Lieutenants and Up will be treated to an interview with Rob Cassis about the genesis of 1001 Album Complaints, the podcast. And then all majors and up will get to ingest this week's incredible episode of Discography's The Top 10. This week's list, Rob Cassis's Top 10 Records of All Time. Then on Thursday, Lieutenants and Up can expect their early release ad-free extended director's cut of next week's episode, Mark Robinson Rates on Rest, The Road to Imperial. And I need to point out that there's a massive difference between the free version and the director's cut. You can expect an hour or two's difference in length, so don't miss out. 
Make sure you visit patreon.com slash discography and check out the thematically related deep dive as a music obsessive's way of life. Our Patreon's been up and running for a year. There are over a hundred Patreon episodes at this point. That's an entire universe of indispensable music podcasts available to you for the price of a cup of coffee a week. And it's free to become a basic member. So go there and do that. Or just chuck me a buck and come claim your backstage pass. And of course, be sure to mark your calendars, because next Friday, January 5th, 2024, we're coming at you with part one of a 16-hour record-setting Mark Robinson interview in which he rates unrest. Part one, we bring you The Road to Imperial. Trust me, you're not going to want to miss it. Whether or not you're familiar with it, this one's a game changer. And so, from now till then, don't let our youth go to waste, lads and ladies. It's Discography. Discography.